dismiss the teens. Hello? Teens, you are dismissed. Grab your Bibles or phones or iPads and join me where we left off yesterday at the end of John chapter 11. We'll begin by just simply reading the entire passage before we dive in. Do you need to stand up? Yeah, why don't you do that? Stand up a little bit. We've been sitting for a while. being heckled here from the second row. That's great. Third row. Second row of people. Of people. My bad. My bad. Oh my. Now I'm being heckled by the second row too. All right. John chapter 11 beginning verse 55. The word of the Lord says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful passage of scripture. Where Mary gives a very priceless gift in worship to her Savior. Beyond that, Lord, help us to see uh, her motivations, help us to understand her heart, that we might emulate uh, her godliness in this moment uh, and worship you and serve you in the same type of way. Lord, guide my thoughts and my words. May your word impact us today. In your son's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Back at the beginning of chapter 11, John introduces us to uh, to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he refers to Mary as the one who anointed Jesus. And we said a couple days ago, you know, John didn't have to go into any detail because people already knew. In fact, uh, there are the, the other Gospels talk about this, uh, at least two of them talk about this same incident. But I started back at the end of chapter 11 to kind of give us a, a, more f- a, a bigger feel for the setting uh, we see the Pharisees have a priority here, and there's an ironic priority here. Uh, the Jewish pilgrims, according to our passage, are going to Jerusalem. 
They want to be there for the festival, and it says that they are purifying themselves in verse 55. <clears throat> if indeed they were doing that, then they're following the Old Testament commands. Uh, in Deuteronomy, it says to consecrate themselves for a certain number of days prior to the feast. Yet we see in the same passage that the Jewish leaders have indelibly stained themselves. They have come into contact, excuse me, they have come into contact with God on earth and they have rejected him. They have, instead of embracing him as their Lord, embracing them, him as, his, as their creator, they have instead put a bounty on his head. They've interacted with him. They have asked him questions. They have tried to find fault with him. And the only faults they could find are faults that are by their own standards, not God's standards. Jesus has become a wanted man. If you see in verse 56, some expected that Jesus would stay away. The, the, the pressure on him at this point is so great that uh, maybe he's just not going to show up to this one. The Pharisees have now put out, put out a call. They put out an APB of sorts, an all-points bulletin, looking for him. They're no longer willing to wait for him to, by chance, come to where they are, uh, or for their, uh, their henchmen to, to come across him. They're asking people, if you know where Jesus is, let us know. Pharisees had a priority, and it was a sinister one. Uh, chapter 12, 1 and 2 give us the immediate setting. Again, we're in Bethany. Again, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. And it'd be easy for us to assume, in fact, if you just read this passage by itself, you'd just assume that he's at Lazarus' house or uh, he's with Mary and Martha uh, because it says Lazarus is reclining at the table with them. It says that, that Martha is serving because, well, that's what Martha does. Uh, but the parallel passages, Matthew and Mark, uh, actually tell us that uh, they're at a place uh, that is owned by a man named Simon. It's Simon's house, and whoever this was, clearly Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are close to, that, to him because they have a prominent role in this event. I mentioned already that the three Gospels, that there are three of the four Gospels that record this very event. Luke 7 actually records a similar event, uh, but I do believe that it's not this same event because the woman anointing Jesus uh, is known as a sinner, and Jesus, as she is leaving, says, uh, your sins are forgiven you, your faith has made you well. This does not fit the profile of Mary in John chapter 12, nor in uh, Mark chapter 14, nor in Matthew 26. So uh, my point of bringing that up is that all the four gospel writers uh, found it important to include, by the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that uh, there were w these women that came and prepared Jesus for burial before his death. And this was not uh, these women just deciding to do something crazy. I've got this expensive ointment, I want to just use it on Jesus. No, that's, that's God orchestrating each little event as we've been talking about all week. Anyway, the three Gospels that record this event all highlight the giver, the gift, and the reaction of those around them. Uh, as we just saw in, at the end of chapter 11, the Pharisees have a priority. They want to kill Jesus, but what I really want to focus on is Mary's priority. We see that in verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. And if we were to just stop right there in that sentence, 
I'm pretty sure none of us have any experience with any of those things. A pound of pure nard, what is that? <laughs> uh, anointing the feet, why would you do that? What is that all about? So let's, let's break it down. Uh, the, the Roman litra, or the pound here, would be the equivalent of about 12 ounces worth of weight. Uh, now, I know some of you are into essential oils. For crying out loud, I'm pretty sure there are dealers of essential oils sitting right here today. I, I heard, yeah, there are. Okay, so you can have your sales afterwards. Um, <laughs> you can buy a, an ounce of, of certain essential oils for about $30, and that's expensive. But when you only use it a drop at a time, you know that lasts and you can, you can make that work. Uh, this was 12 ounces of basically an essential oil, but it cost way more than $30 per ounce. If you were to take uh, what, uh, what Judas complains about, man, this is, this is so much money, we could have given it to the poor. If you calculate that in today's dollars in Iowa uh, with median incomes and so forth, you're talking about over $50,000 worth of essential oil in about 12 ounces worth of capacity. Um, the pound here is a, is a weight, but it's very similar in capacity to what a 12-ounce can of pop would be. Is that a lot of oil? Well, for essential oils, yeah. But th the expense is mind-blowing. 50000 so, in other words, this was no small gift that Mary was given to Jesus. And if you were to, to empty out your essential oils collection on someone, that would, that would make a dent in your wallet. But not like this. Uh, some have commented that perhaps this would have been a dowry. Because why would Mary have had this amount of valuable uh, ointment on hand if it weren't for something special? And why would she have... Uh, the authority to use it if it wasn't her own. And so quite likely, it is something that she inherited that was to be saved for a dowry. In other words, when she gives this up to Jesus, she is giving up her opportunity to be married. Quite likely. John doesn't mention the, the canister, the jar that it came in, but Matthew and Mark do. They both refer to it as an alabaster flask. Uh, this type of flask would have a, a, a bulbous content at the bottom, but then a long, thin neck, and, and it'd be sealed. It'd be permanently sealed uh, so that when you used it, you'd have to break that neck so you could pour out the contents. In other words, this oil was an all-or-nothing gift. It's not like our little oils that have a little cap on it, and you can use one drop, and then you can put it away. When Mary broke this open to use it on Jesus, there was no using just a little bit uh, to anoint his feet and then save the rest of it for something else, save it for her dowry or, or for whatever other purpose it might have originally had. No, this was an all-or-nothing gift. John tells us that Mary anointed and wiped Jesus' feet with this, anointment, but, with this ointment, but Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus' head was anointed. Now, this is not a contradiction. These are parallel passages. Uh, it's not a contradiction because John does not say that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and not his head. And, and Matthew and Mark do not say that his head was anointed but not his feet. It's that the gospel writers are giving us different facets of the same events. They're telling us the same thing. And what John is doing is he's highlighting how much Mary 
loved Jesus. See, in the Jewish culture, uh, touching someone's feet was a very degrading experience. By the way, it's not a very glorifying experience in our culture. Uh, but it was a very degrading experience in the Jewish culture. It was something that, that, uh, that normal class people would not do. Only the slaves would do it. Only the lowest of the servants, the lowest people on the cultural spectrum, would be tasked with touching someone's feet. So the fact that Mary does this in the presence of others speaks volumes about the high regard that she had for Jesus. It doesn't mean that she thought of herself as being too low or, or, or thinking of herself as being a, a nobody that is supposed to do a menial task. It's that she saw Jesus as being so exalted and so high that, that he deserved to have his feet anointed as well. Verse 3 says that the the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We know that, that she's doing this in public because, uh, because people are commenting about it. But even if no one else had been in the room at the time that she started doing this, everyone knew soon thereafter. I don't have to ask if my children have been into the essential oils. I know because I smell it. Well, magnify that by a whole bunch to get 12 ounces worth. People knew Something was going on. So even if they were in another room, another part of the house, maybe even out in the yard, they would come in and, and wonder what was going on. The house was filled with the fragrance. What does that tell me? That tells me that Mary was not ashamed of what she was doing. She was not worshiping Jesus hiding. She was worshiping Jesus publicly. Wasn't, uh, it, it, the whole thing wasn't about her. It wasn't about the, the humility that it would take to do what she did. It was about loving her Savior and exalting him. Mary had a priority, and her only priority in this moment was Jesus. Much like you were talking about, the 20-year-old yourself. Pharisees had a priority. Mary had a priority. Judas has a priority. Verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of, dis, one of his disciples who was about to betray him. It, it, it makes me chuckle a little bit every time I read Judas Iscariot, or Judas, the one who would betray Jesus. Uh, all throughout John, uh, when, when he refers to Judas, he, he puts that in there be, just to make sure that we are certainly talking about the one Judas. Uh, not some other person that wasn't nearly as terrible as this man. Uh, but just to, to circle him out, to point him out each and every time. And he says uh, publicly, verse 5, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now that's a legitimate question, isn't it? Uh, don't we run into questions like that all the time? Uh, we're doing a, a project at church and we wanna, maybe we want to add a, 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 a chunk of building to the, to the property, add a gymnasium, add something that will be very useful. Uh, and then people start hearing the price tag and they're like, well, you know, <laughs> We could feed lost children in Africa for 300 years if we would just send that money over there. And they're not wrong, right? There are lots of times where we spend lots of money on certain things, and you could make the case, well, I could probably do with a little less and then give my money, give the extra money, the, the, the rest of it, to the church or to some uh, charitable organization. Give it to the camp. People have been good at doing that. But that's not what Judas was really about. He could not care less about the poor. Uh, John makes no bones about it. Judas is, not, uh, Judas is not simply a misguided person. He's not simply someone who was with Jesus and really didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. No, uh, John is very clear. Judas was evil. 
Uh, earlier in the gospel, in chapter 6, he refers to Judas as the devil. And John has no, no qualms about calling him that. Now, Matthew and Mark uh, don't mention Judas as the one who asks about, you know, why didn't we sell this ointment and give it to the poor? Uh, but John just flat out says it. It was Judas. And he didn't say this, verse 6, because he cared about the poor. It's because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bags, and he kept himself enriched by it. Judas had a priority. It was not Jesus. Judas's priority was money. It was himself. He didn't care about what was going on. He was, he was fine to go along with Jesus and, and kind of be in the shadow of his fame because uh, his famousness made him look famous too. But Judas is the opposite of Mary. He doesn't worship Jesus holding nothing back. He's the enemy. He's the unforgivable betrayer. He's the hypocritical thief. Not only does John emphasize the unrestrained worship of Mary, a little more so than the other Gospels, uh, that, that Mary had anointed not only his head but his feet, uh, John is also the one to clarify that, it, that Judas is the exact opposite of it. And he's, he's doing that. He's creating a very stark contrast for it. The, the unrestrained love of Mary and the unrestrained greed of, of, the, of Judas. Right after this event, Matthew records for us a little bit more. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Because right after this event, right after this beautiful act of worship by Mary, that Judas heads down the path of ultimate betrayal. Everyone worships something. Everyone gives themselves over to something. Uh, Paul Tripp is fond of saying things like this. Uh, it's not matter if you will worship, it's what will you worship. Because we all worship. We all worship something, someone, some way. And most of the time, people worship themselves, right? Judas is worshiping himself. He's, uh, he's seeking after his own desires. And people in church are quite capable of doing the same thing. Uh, you notice I play a variety of songs for us. We lead, I lead in, in trying to include old hymns and new hymns uh, and some other contemporary things because there's a blend of people from all over the state that have different preferences and different desires. And so... I want everyone to have an opportunity to worship, but oftentimes worship becomes something where we become selfish, where, uh, where we desire, well, uh, I'll sing this song because it's my favorite, and I'll sing it out, but this other song, I'm not going to sing it. And it's not because you don't know it, it's because uh, you just don't like the style. I'm not pointing at anybody in here. In fact, I, my eyes are such I can't really see if, who's singing or not. My point is, is that we all worship something, and most often we worship ourselves. Judas was after his own desires, his own greed. The Pharisees had a priority. Mary had a priority. Judas has a priority. Let's look at Jesus' priority, verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. In verse 8, when he talks about not worrying about the poor, he is not suggesting that we neglect the poor. What he's saying is that there is a special thing happening right here that's not repeatable later. There will always be opportunities 
to give to the poor, to give to someone in need. Um, this happened a lot more often when we lived in a large city. We lived in Dallas, Texas for several years, but uh, I've, I've bought food for all sorts of people that I'd never met before. They come up to you at the gas station or at a restaurant and say, uh, I've got my family here. I don't have any money. Can you give me some money? I said, well, I, I can't really give you any money, but I'll buy your meal. Just get whatever you want. Uh, don't hold back. Get the dessert, too, and, and I'll buy you some meal. I bought people gas. I've, I've given money to all sorts of strangers. He's not saying don't give to the poor. What he's saying is her worship is not misdirected. In giving it to Jesus, that is not a waste. He's highlighting the importance of this soon-to-happen event that would change the world. His death, his resurrection, and his departure. He's going to leave. It seems that Mary may be the only one who understood that Jesus really meant it when he said he was going to die. And maybe it's because uh, she recalled what the disciples had told her. Uh, when, when Lazarus rose, you know that the disciples didn't just sit there and zip their lips. You know that they were talking to everyone saying, you know, Jesus did kind of tell us this was going to happen. He said Lazarus is asleep, he's going to wake him, and, and look. Maybe Mary is the only one that really caught that Jesus is going to die. He had been saying it for a while now. And the disciples kept going, no, you're not going to die. In fact, at one point, Peter says, there is no way that you're going to die. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind you. Get behind me, Satan. Because words like that are words from the devil, not words of Christ. Matthew records a fuller account of Jesus' response. We read Jesus' response. Don't uh, leave her alone that she may keep it for, her, for my burial. Uh, in Matthew, we read the, this. Uh, Jesus, aware of their grumbling, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Indeed. Indeed it is. See, Mary's extravagant gift was graciously received by the Savior. Judas and perhaps others would say, that, that is not budgeting right at all. You're wasting this valuable thing. But Jesus accepts it. He accepts the act of worship for what it is. See, in light of the gift that Jesus is about to give her, the gift that Jesus has given us, this extravagant gift is not over the top at all. In fact, Jesus is worthy of so much more. And so he graciously receives the gift. So uh, because of what Jesus has done for us in dying on the cross for our sins, then any unrestrained gift we might offer to him is never too much. He doesn't chide her. He doesn't say, oh, you should have saved that for, for something that you could do later. No, he just very graciously accepts it. When he says in verse 7, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial, that might sound a little odd because if she's using it now, she can't keep it for the burial. But what he's saying is, don't sour this moment for her. Let her remember her act of worship. Let her remember 
when I die and am buried, the love that she showed me in this moment. Your big idea is in your booklet. It says, true worship holds back nothing. There are two types of people highlighted in this account. There are other people that are there. Uh, Some of them are introduced to us early on, uh, but they're basically ignored for the rest of the the account. There are two basic types of people. There are someone who is totally against Jesus, and there are some who are totally for Jesus. Jesus. This is the contrast that John, that, that the Holy Spirit in, in causing John to write this book uh, is bringing out in the passage. So my question is, is which type are you? Are you all in or are you against him? Because scripturally, and not just this passage, but scripturally, I don't see another alternative. I don't see the capacity to uh, praise him with your heart to truly listen to the preaching of the word to give on the offering and do all those things on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday have nothing to do with your Savior. I don't see that. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. In fact, uh, he mentioned C.S. Lewis. Uh, Mere Christianity is a book that he wrote and yes, there are some things that are theologically not right in that book but there are very few. The bulk of the book is fantastic uh, and, and what he lays out is the concept that that giving yourself over to the Lord is not super Christianity. It's just plain old being a Christian. In other words, giving yourself over to him, whether it's, uh, whether it's in a, a, a vocational occupation or not, is not the point. Giving yourself over to him in everything that you are, everything that you have, every relationship that you have, is not super-duper disciples. It's just regular old disciples. This whole concept makes me think of uh, missionaries Nate Saint and Jim Elliott. Are those names familiar to you? Many of you, they are. Uh, They attempted to reach the Aka people of Ecuador. The Aka were known as a violent, savage people. In fact, that's what the the word means. Uh, That they were just ruthless people. And the team of missionaries knew this. They knew about their history. They knew that they were even cannibals uh, at some point. Uh, They knew that there was danger and uh, a risk in what they were trying to do and trying to reach them for the Lord. And sure enough, it did cost them their lives. Um, If you want to know more about the missionaries you haven't heard about, I can point you in the right direction. I'm not going to tell it all here. From a worldly point of view, we could look at these young lives lost and call it a waste, right? We We could look at what they did and say, you know, if they'd have been a little more cautious... They had just slowed down their timetable. In fact, uh, that fateful day, they had landed on a beach and uh, were going to make face-to-face contact. Uh, they actually did it without telling most of the people that they were with because uh, they knew the risk, they knew the danger, they knew that this, was, uh, this, this might not work at all. If they had been more cautious, they could have lived longer and they could have served the Lord more. Isn't that how we think? And, and isn't that a true statement? I mean, if if we let our health go completely and we're incapable of, of serving the Lord the way we had been, isn't that, a, isn't that a shame? Yeah, it is. But when God's called you to do something, these missionaries were all in. They knew that it could cost them their lives, and it did. And as a result of their deaths, the gospel did eventually take hold among these people in Ecuador. 
They offered God their very lives, their most precious, most valuable gift. And God accepted their gift for a few short years of service. Did Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and their companions waste their lives? No. No, they gave to Jesus all that they had. True worship holds back nothing. Are you all in? Now for some, when I say that, that does mean that you're going to leave behind whatever you're doing now and you're going to go into full-time vocational ministry. And as soon as I say that, I know some of you are thinking, well, that applies to the college students in the room. That applies to the people that haven't really settled in yet. I'm telling you, it's not. Thank you for sharing that. Your dad went into ministry later in life. I didn't know that. Perfect example. We had a couple in my last church that were, uh, they'd retired uh, from, from their jobs. Uh, they had a nice retirement fund built up. They had a nice house to live in. And they gave up all of that so that they could go and be uh, relief teachers to a Christian school in Portugal. And, and so uh, they're only able... They, m- you look forward to retirement, to be able to spend more time with family, especially if your uh, adult children have moved away like theirs had, and, and they would dream about you know, being able to spend a couple months in, in New Mexico with, with some of their family and spend a couple months in Wisconsin with some of their families and, and hit the seasons right so you don't get the worst end of both deals. And, and they could have done that, but instead they said, no, we're going to take nine months of, of each year and we're going to go overseas and serve the Lord and, and really shorten the amount of time that they could spend Uh, with their family. There's another couple I know. I don't think they were quite retirement age, but he quit his medical practice uh, to go do some medical missions, uh, serving uh, the jungles of of Nicaragua and bringing both medical and spiritual healing. I know another man uh, in Wisconsin in his 50s, a little bit younger, uh, who left a stable job to go work for a missions agency. By the way, when you work for a missions agency, you're asking churches to support you. You're asking people to send in money, and that is not nearly as secure of an income as a stable job is. But he did it because that's how God led. I know another family, uh, this man was in his 40s, had a good-paying tech sector job, a very good-paying tech sector job, and he left it to go into vocational Christian ministry. God may be calling someone here to do just that, to leave what you're doing, to leave the comfort of knowing what you have to go and serve the Lord. Mary had a $50,000 asset that was very mobile. To me, that's terrifying. Uh, But she had that, and she gave it up for her Savior. That was a lot of security. Whether it was a dowry or not, that was a savings account right there. A pretty good one. And she gave it up for her Savior. For some, that means vocational ministry. For others, being sold out for God might mean staying where you are, staying right where you are, but having a stronger motivation for God's work right where you are. Maybe it means giving more of your time. Being sold out might mean uh, more than than just coming to church when nothing else is going on, but we flip that. Uh, We come to church as often as we can and, and only miss on the rare exception. Now, that's probably not something I need to say in this crowd, I mean, if you're taking your vacation and coming to family camp, you're probably pretty committed to your church, but it might mean more time that you spend. It might mean uh, by being sold out, by giving more to the Lord financially, rather than giving what's left over at the end of the month, uh, giving a, 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 a determined amount at the beginning of your budget and seeing how God fills in the gaps. It's amazing to see how he does that. 
It might mean uh, increasing your purpose. It might mean that you begin to pray intentionally for opportunity to share Christ with a specific individual rather than just waiting for a chance encounter. I don't know what being fully sold out looks like in your life. I know that in my life, I'm not always sold out. I was at junior high camp for part of the week last week, and one of the messages that Mark Davis brought was to get kids to give their lives to Christ. And, and one of the things that he said is, is what wouldn't you do for Christ? And I don't remember how he worded it, and those of you who were there might say, he never said that. Well, that's what I heard. Okay, take that for what it is. And I started thinking, you know, there are some things that if God asked me to do, it would be very hard for me to do. Now, God's not asking me to do those things, so it's, it's a very hypothetical but I had to sit there and think, am I really fully open to anything God wants to bring down the path? And the answer was no. I had to give that up to him. True worship holds back nothing. What are you clinging to? Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's relational. Um, I was the program chairman. What Steve Cox does here, I was a program chairman for junior girls. Well, I have a junior girl camper. Uh, with as many girls as I have, we're going to have junior girl campers for a long time. <laughs> and and one of the, the, both of the speakers that week were single women who were missionaries. And uh, to hear their testimonies and go, you know, Lord, you, you might actually do that with one of my girls. And am I... Am I open-handedly holding my children. Lord, you can have them and do with them what you want. True worship holds back nothing. We've got discussion questions for you to go through to help you work through some of that. Uh, but my question for you as we close is what are you holding back? Because I think deep down we all hold on to something. We may not realize it. Uh, ever had it when you're, uh, well, I went jet skiing the other day. And then later that day, man, my hand hurts. <laughs> I was hanging on so tightly, didn't realize how tightly I was hanging on to the jet ski. There are things that we hang on to tightly and we don't realize it. And, and so take some time after we close to, to really examine what you might be hanging on to. Lord, thank you for the, the example of Mary and her desire to give up anything for the cause of Christ. To be able to, to give up her most valuable possession and and even in spite of, uh, of onlookers who would say that it's a waste or what she was doing was humiliating and no one should do it, she did it anyway because she knew the unsurpassing value of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to have that same perspective. Help us to hold loosely the things of this world that we might truly worship you freely, that we would worship you holding nothing back. For you alone are worthy of that kind of devotion. Help us to be your people. Help us to grow today. In your son's name I pray. Amen.